All right, please take your Bibles this evening and turn to Luke 7. Luke 7, looking at verses 1 through 18 this evening, title of our sermon, Greater Faith, Greater Works. Many of you uh, perhaps have followed online and are caught up in, in the series. Jesus has just finished giving definitive teaching on the nature of spirit-mindedness and Christ-likeness. That was what Luke 6 was all about. He has stretched the limits of our thinking and certainly of the thinking of the Jewish minds of the day. Certainly the thinking of the Jewish minds of the day. He has stretched the limits of Jewish thinking on the law and on the prophets. He has drawn his followers into a new mindset which rests on faith. But you know, we humans are a fickle lot, aren't we? Slow to change and often very stubborn. We struggle to change our preconceived notions, to change the ideas that have been ingrained into us. Even when we know what we ought to do, it can be a difficult thing to do it when we've been preconditioned to act or to think differently. Such was the case with the Jewish people. Many followed Christ. We've seen Peter in amazement fall down at Jesus' feet, having uh, watched as fish filled his net so much so that the boat began to sink and the nets began to break. And he fell down at Jesus' feet and he said, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man. But as Jesus walked the earth, his ministry was multifaceted. As he taught on the kingdom of heaven, as he did great works in the name of God, he also bore the responsibility of helping those who had believed in his name grow in their faith. Jesus would spend no small amount of time seeking to break down the barriers of the preconceived notions of those who followed him, who had believed on him, who had fallen at his feet and said, you are the the son of the living God, and yet were still stuck in the ruts of everything that they'd been learning for so long. Such notions often follow the religious, ourselves included. Now, this is no reason to reject religion. It's simply a reason for us to be constantly examining ourselves. Whether or not what we're doing is for the right reasons. Whether or not what we're doing is appropriate. Whether or not what we have thought and what we've always thought is right. We get so stuck on how we have experienced God and how we have experienced His Word that we are tempted to put God into a box. We, we, we all want to understand God. We all want to know God. And we've experienced God in certain ways. And if we're not careful, the way that we have experienced God will become the realm in which, the only realm in which we're willing to experience God. It's the only realm in which we're willing to understand Him. And anything that goes outside of our little box of understanding, we just, we reject. Now, I don't speak of accepting that which operates outside of biblical teaching or biblical precedent. We have churches all over the place today that say you need to get out of that little box. And they're not talking about the box of your notion of who God is. They're talking about the box of the Bible. That's a problem. We, we don't get outside this box, ever. This is our box. There's freedom within this box, and there's everything we could possibly need in this box. But sometimes we can narrow that box just so that we can have the peace of feeling like we understand God. We've got a hold of Him. That, that, that we've wrapped our arms around Him. We've wrapped our minds around Him. 
There are many today who call for Christians to open themselves up to alternative sources of truth, to trust and experience over doctrine. We don't go there. We must not go there. Indeed, alternative sources of doctrine we would call doctrines of demons and lead men into confusion and ineffectiveness, if not apostasy, heresy, and perdition. But by that same token, we understand that even when it comes to matters of sound doctrine and biblical teaching, the way that we understand God and the way we understand the world is shaped by our experiences. And it often takes time, effort, and great humility to expand or perhaps to deprogram the way we think. And that's what Jesus is having to do with his Jewish followers. And it's going to be this way for the extent of Jesus' ministry and even into the time after his resurrection. Immediately after his resurrection, if you recall, Jesus has been teaching them and he's about to ascend into heaven and they say, Jesus, will you now at this time restore your kingdom? And Jesus says, it's not given for you to know what is in the mind of my father, what is the, what is the will of my father. But even to that very last moment following the resurrection, they're, they're looking at the risen Lord. They're still saying, okay, is it time now? Their, their box is still kind of small. They haven't received the Holy Spirit yet. Pentecost hasn't come yet. And so we should understand that we can, we can be in this sort of a box. And Jesus is, throughout his ministry, seeking to expand people's understanding of God and his work in the world. Jesus has introduced this to the Jews already. He's told them in Luke 5 that he was bringing new wine. That new wine can't fit into old bottles because they'll break. That you can't sew a piece of new cloth onto an old garment or else the rent will be made worse. This new wine was not going to change the essential character of God's will or God's works, but would change the method through which he worked out that will. But it would take some time. And maybe some people who came without such preconceived notions to convince Jesus' disciples of the power of Christ and of the potential of his message. So we will cover two separate accounts today, both of which point to the same important truth. And that truth, as Jesus is seeking to, to teach his disciples, is that his authority is limitless and his capacity to exercise that authority on behalf of those who love him bound only by his will, is also limitless. Greater faith, greater works. We're going to find some of the the greatest works that Jesus did on the earth in this passage today. And you're in Luke chapter 7. We're looking at verses 1 through 18 this evening. We begin reading in verses 1 and 2. The Bible says, Now when he had ended all his sayings in the audience of, of the people, he entered into Capernaum. And a certain centurion servant who was dear unto him was sick and ready to die. Our account begins today with Jesus returning to Capernaum following his teaching on the coast of Tyre and Sidon. He has called them to follow him, his disciples to follow him. He has asked them to follow by selfless abandon to the principles of humility, of charity, of obedience, to transition their mind from thinking about this earth and thinking about material things to a spirit-mindedness whereby the things of heaven are far more important than the things of earth, whereby the things of the world to come and laying up treasure in heaven and investing in the things of the of the kingdom of heaven are far more important than investments on this earth. He's called them to that. He stretched them to that. Now he's back. And we are introduced 
to a Gentile, a centurion, whose servant, a man very dear to him, was sick and ready to die. Centurions were officers in the Roman military, leaders of around 100 or so men. Depending on the point of time in in history, they had a few more men, a few fewer men. It just depends on the time. Uh, But they they were leaders of around 100 men within a Roman legion. A Roman legion was the largest unit in the Roman army. At this time, it was likely consisting of somewhere around 5,000 soldiers. The legion would then be made up of 10 cohorts of 480 or so soldiers apiece. And then within that cohort, you would have six centurions leading anywhere from 80 to 100 men apiece each within the rank of this cohort. So you had a, a very organized echelon of leadership, and a centurion was a leadership position, but we'd call it the lowest level of leadership within the Roman military system. They were not highly ranked, but they were leaders of men, and men who had great opportunity for upward mobility within that Roman legion. So we continue in our passage, we have this centurion and his servant is sick. And in verse 3 we read this, And when he heard of Jesus, he sent unto him the elders of the Jews, beseeching him that he would come and heal his servant. So, <coughs> excuse me. So the centurion hears of Jesus. And notice what he does. He sends elders of the Jews to Jesus, beseeching him, begging Jesus that he would come and heal his servant. Now, it's interesting here that we have a Roman centurion and some elders of the Jews who are willing to, on behalf of this Roman centurion, go to Jesus and appeal to him. And it's not necessarily surprising that the centurion would do this because to this point we have seen Jesus is a Jew. He's preaching the kingdom of heaven, which was a Jewish ideal from the Jewish prophets, and he has gone only to the Jews. And indeed, later on, we'll find that Jesus is quite exclusive to this. He says, I am called only to the lost sheep of Israel. And so the centurion, recognizing that Jesus is a Jewish prophet, ministering to a Jewish audience, sends Jews to make this appeal. In verses 4 and 5, we read this, And when they came to Jesus, they besought him instantly, saying that he was worthy for whom he should do this, for he loveth our nation, and he hath built us a synagogue. The elders of the Jews come to Jesus, and they are beseeching him for this purpose. They say, this man is worthy. An interesting thought. Their standard for worthiness was based on the fact that he loved Israel, that he had built for the Jews in his particular area a synagogue. It would have been no small task. It would have been no cheap task to do so. A synagogue required eight Jewish families to come together before one could be built. And yet it also took resources. It took a commitment. And the centurion, who was a Roman, was willing to put forth the effort of building for the Jews in this area a synagogue. So here's the scenario as it stands. Centurion is a Roman. He's a Gentile. He's assigned to serve in an area of Galilee. He learned to love this nation of whom he had been assigned basically as a peacekeeper and enforcer of the laws of Rome. And he had accepted this God, the God of Israel, as his own. So devoted was he to the God of Israel that he took the initiative to build a synagogue for the people in his area, most likely himself included, 
to worship. The synagogue was a building that came about during the time of the exile when the temple of God had been destroyed. God had commanded the nation that they were only to worship God in the temple, that they were not to worship Him outside of the temple complex and only in Jerusalem where the house of the Lord was built. But as the house of the Lord was completely in ruins, uh, having been destroyed by Babylon during the time of the prophets, uh, particularly Ezekiel, they began to gather to worship the Lord in Sabbath days in small collectives based around their communities. And they called these collectives synagogues. So these synagogues would have originated primarily in Babylon and in the refugee camps surrounding Babylon. We know Ezekiel was in a place by the river Kibar. Kibar being a river outside of the, the, the city there of Babylon. And he would have been in effectively a refugee camp. And so he... And the, the men and women of, of Israel, having no temple, being in captivity, collected around synagogues in order to worship. It was first meant just for the community and teaching on Sabbath days and on feast days. But soon it, it grew to become the very center of all community activity in these Jewish communities. In much the same way that a church would have been... In, in decades prior, where when a, when a city was built or a town was built, the church was built first. It was in the very center of town. It was everything to the town. The church was the city center. It was the community center. It was uh, it was everything to the town. And that's how how uh, towns used to be and churches used to be and such. In the same way, that's how synagogues were in Jewish history. Now, the aim of the synagogue was teaching. It was a house of instruction intended to retain and pass on the essentials of the Jewish faith from generation to generation as God has always commanded his people to do. By this time in history, by the time of of the New Testament, Jews had spread throughout the Roman Empire. Of course, they came back out of captivity. Zerubbabel builds the temple. We read about that in Ezra and in Nehemiah. And they rebuild the temple. They rebuild Jerusalem. Nehemiah builds the walls around Jerusalem. They get things going again. It's a very modest, it's a very small temple. But they only have a very small group of people that actually came back. Most of them stayed in Babylon. The majority of Jews stayed in Babylon, stayed in Persia. They did not come back from, uh, with the captivity. And then as the Jewish state and Israel began to grow once again, and of course they were handed off between the the Seleucids and, and Syria and the Egyptians and the Greeks and, and the land was fought back and forth during the intertestamental period. Uh, by the time of the Roman Empire, the Jews had been a, a very tortured group of people in Israel. But the Roman Empire afforded them something. It afforded them mobility. The Rome had built their, their highway system, their infrastructure, and they were allowed to move about freely in the Roman Empire. And so the Jews spread. And as they spread, this concept that had been started in Babylon, that was still being used there, began to be used everywhere throughout the Roman Empire, this concept of the synagogue. So synagogues were everywhere. They were Anywhere where there were eight Jewish families, you would find a synagogue. And the centurion had built one of these synagogues there in this town in this city somewhere, we don't know where, in Galilee. But that's a unique thing. It's a very unique thing for a Gentile to fund and to build a Jewish synagogue. It does not seem that this man was fully a proselyte necessarily, having officially converted to Judaism, though he may have been. 
but he was certainly a man with a deep love for the nation and the nation's God. The nation's God had touched his heart, caused him to give himself fully, and a part of his expression of that was to build a place of worship for the Jews in his community. You know, faith will always work itself out in our lives and actions, some great, some small, but faith works itself out. This man loved God and he was faithful to God and his faith worked itself out in this way. And it was on this account that they said, this man is worthy. Now remember, we're talking about Jews here. So the Jews are seeking to appeal to Jesus on, on the account of his worth, on the account of the fact that he's close enough to the Jews. It's a very Jewish mindset, right? It's, it's, it's how the Jews think. He's worthy because he did this for the Jewish people. Well, we're going to find that his worthiness is rooted in something much deeper, something much greater than simply building a synagogue. And it's going to be a great lesson to the Jews. It's going to be a great lesson to us as well. So Jesus hears this. These Jewish elders are beseeching Jesus on behalf of a Gentile man to heal him because this man has meant so much to them. And Jesus follows. We read in verse 6. Then Jesus went with them. And when he was now not far from the house, the centurion sent friends to him, saying unto him, Lord, Trouble not thyself, for I am not worthy that thou shouldst enter under my roof. Jesus is going. He's doing exactly what the elders ask. He's doing exactly what the centurion beseeched. He is going to this man's house. But when they're not far off from the house, the centurion sends friends to Jesus. He sends other people that were a part of his household to Jesus, and he tells Jesus, you don't need to trouble yourself coming all this way. You don't have to actually get to my house. And the reason for this is that he regarded himself as unworthy that Jesus should enter under his roof. Notice the contrast here. The Jewish elders come to Jesus and say, this man is worthy of your attention. The centurion himself sends to Jesus saying, I'm not even worthy of your presence. Do you see the contrast? Note that contrast, because this is a contrast. This is what we are seeing here. This is Jesus as he's teaching about new wine, and as he's teaching about the children of the kingdom, and how the children of the kingdom will reject him. Remember when we talked about that when he went to Nazareth? And he said, you're going to reject me, and God's going to expand his reach to the Gentile world, and they tried to throw him over a cliff? Because he's a heretic? This is what we're seeing now. We're seeing the Jews and they're struggling with this concept. This man is worthy. Don't worry about the other Gentiles, but this man is worthy because he built for us a synagogue. But the centurion himself, this Gentile man who had built the synagogue, he has no, no thoughts of worthiness. He says, I am unworthy that you should come under my roof. I am unworthy that you should take the time and the effort to bring your presence all the way to me. And notice what he then says in verse 7. Wherefore, neither thought I myself worthy to come unto thee, but say in a word, and my servant shall be healed. Not only am I not worthy to have you in my house, Jesus, but I didn't even feel as though I'm worthy enough to come to you and to tell you this on my own. So I sent friends to tell you, I'm not worthy to meet you. I'm not worthy for you to come to me. I'm not worthy of anything. The elders say, this man is worthy. He built a synagogue. This man says, I am not even worthy of your presence, among uh, of my presence before you. But, he says, that doesn't mean I don't want you to help me. I simply know this. All you have to do is say the word. 
and my servant would be healed. The centurion says, just say in a word and my servant shall be healed. The servant does something here. The centurion, excuse me, does something here that is astounding. He rightly recognizes his position before Christ. He rightly recognizes his unworthiness. But rather than allowing that unworthiness to strip him of the blessing of faith, he allows this unworthiness to increase his faith, seeking rather that Jesus would only say a word. Peter also fell down at Jesus' feet, did he not? And said, depart from me for I am unworthy after Jesus let all those fish swim into his net. Peter also did this. But then when it comes to that next step of faith, Peter hit a wall. A Jewish wall. The centurion blew right past that wall because he didn't have preconceived notions in his mind about what what, what God could do, what God would do, how God could work, how God would work. And he blew right past that wall. He said, all you have to do is say a word and my servant will be healed. His reasoning continues in verse 8. He says, for I also am a man set under authority, having under me soldiers, and I say unto one, go, and he goeth, and to another, come, and he cometh, and to my servant, do this, and he doeth it. The centurion understands something here. He understands one of the themes of this book in Luke. He understands authority. He gets it. He has authority over some 100 men. He tells a soldier to do something and that thing gets done in his name even, right? The centurion says, go do this for me. And when that job is done well, that, that, that job is done and the centurion gets the credit because he's the man in charge. That's how authority works. You delegate authority. The people do it. You give them the credit that's due under their name, but, but it, it helps you too. It makes you look good when those under you do their job well. He doesn't need to micromanage because he understands delegation. I tell a soldier to do something, he does it. I tell a soldier to come here, he comes. I tell my servant to do something and I trust that it gets done. I don't have to micromanage. I don't have to do it all myself. I don't have to be present everywhere at one time because I'm present through those who follow me. I'm present through those who are under my authority. They are an extension of me. I tell them they do it so that I can be effectively in many places at once. He gets that. He delegates. The work is accomplished in his name. And this centurion, a man whose faith has no doubt been shaped not by the teachings of the scribes and the Pharisees and by the limitations of the scribes and the Pharisees, but by a careful reading of the Old Testament scriptures and his own understanding of how things work in the world, regarded Jesus' ministry and said, this man's ministry bears the unmistakable marks of God's authority. And if, if Jesus' ministry bears the marks of God's authority, if he is speaking in the authority in the name of God himself, then there are no limits to what Jesus can do. And what that would mean to this centurion was that regardless of Jesus' physical location, if he commanded creation and he commanded illness and he commanded spirits to depart, evil spirits to depart, well then, what he's seeking can be accomplished with a single word. 
Jesus' response in verse 9. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him and turned him about and said unto the people that followed him, I say unto you, I have not found so great faith. No, not in Israel. Understand something about the Jews. The Jews were a people from their very inception who demanded signs and wonders to convince them of anything, right? Moses had spent 40 years in the wilderness having killed an Egyptian thinking, believing with all his heart that he was the Jews' liberation. He was their, 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 their soldier to liberate them. So he kills an Egyptian and he realizes that didn't go very well for him. He tried it his way, it didn't work. So he has to flee. The next 40 years he's spending in the wilderness of Midian and then he sees a burning bush. And that burning bush is speaking to him. And that burning bush tells him, take off your shoes for you are on holy ground. And that bush is not being consumed. And he's right there before the glory of the Lord. And he hears the very voice of the Lord saying, introducing himself, I am that I am. The the ever existent one, the, the Jehovah, the Yahweh. And yet, as Moses is talking to this bush that is talking back to him, and the glory of the Lord is shining upon him, Moses says, Look, bush that's not being consumed. I got to have some proof. I got to have some proof. God says, okay, I'll prove that I can work through you. Throw your staff on the ground. He throws the staff on the ground. It becomes a snake. Moses runs away. God says, okay, now pick up the staff. He picks up the staff. It becomes a snake and it becomes a staff again. He says, put your hand into your coat. He puts his hand into his coat. He pulls it out and it's leprous. It's, it's eaten away by infection and disease. He says, put it in again. He puts it in again. It comes out clean. Moses sees this. He hears this. The great signs, the great promises. God says, now I'm going to send you and you're going to speak and you're going to deliver your people. And Moses says, uh, God, here's the thing. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not eloquent. I'm not a good speaker. The people won't listen even if you send me. The Jews have always been a little bit slow on the uptake. They've got to have the signs. They've got to have the wonders. They've got to see it again and again and again. The people saw signs and wonders in the wilderness, right? They walked through the Red Sea on dry ground. And as they walked through the, dry, the, the Red Sea on dry ground, and then they made it to Mount Sinai uh, a few days later, and, and the, the bitter waters of Marah had been made sweet, and now they're at the mountain, and they hear the very voice of God saying, Thou shalt have no other gods before me. And then Moses goes up to receive the Ten Commandments, and 40 days later they say, We don't know what happened to that man. Aaron, build us gods that we may worship him. And Aaron forges a calf. While the fires of heaven are burning on the mountain and the ground beneath it, is shaking and just 40 days earlier they had been so terrified by the voice of the living God that they said Moses never ever 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 again let God speak to us you speak to him then you speak to us you be our intermediary and only 40 days after those signs and those wonders after seeing the entire Egyptian army destroyed they're worshiping a golden calf and then they're eating this bread this bread that Psalm calls angels food this bread that sustained them in the wilderness and they say we loathe this light bread we long for the meat of egypt they just they didn't get it but they demanded signs and wonders they 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 craved it they had to have it god sent judges god sent prophets all doing mighty works in the name of the lord because the jewish people have always historically been a people that are hard-hearted and stubborn 
The word often used in Exodus is stiff-necked, right? So slow to believe and demanding signs and wonders. And that's what Jesus came doing because that's what they needed. God understood this. God was willing, so he did signs and wonders. But this Gentile man, here's a Gentile man, and he hasn't seen Jesus' signs and wonders. He is doing his job. He's a centurion. He's got a job to do. He hears about these things. And he reasons within himself that if he, a lowly centurion in the Roman Empire, had sufficient authority to command and to delegate, how much more this man who claims the very power of heaven and earth. And not only claims it, but has proven it. So it's little wonder that Jesus had not seen such faith in Israel. They've got to see the signs. They've got to see the wonders. They will not step out. They will not push their faith to those limits. They have hardened themselves to that. Such men who broke the barriers of faith in Israel were actually somewhat rare. We read about them in the Old Testament, right? Moses was one, but it took some time. took some conditioning, didn't it? Joshua was one. David was one. Jonathan was one. Men who were willing to fully invest in God's power and so were not discouraged by material disadvantages when they faced them. We read of greater men toward the exile, Daniel, Hananiah, Azariah, Mishael, Ezekiel. There's little doubt that it was the faith of these men of years gone by that when combined with an understanding of Jesus' character convinced the centurion of Jesus' ability to heal. Regardless of time, regardless of distance. So Jesus marvels at this faith. So much so he turns, he hears the faith, he turns to the crowd and he says, this man has faith that I've not seen in Israel. And such is all the account that we receive in Luke in regard to this. But I would like us to journey over to Matthew for a few minutes. A parallel account to this one where we get just a little bit more of Jesus' teaching in regard to the centurion in, in regard to this. Remember the Gospel of Luke was written to a Gentile man a man named Theophilus and the purpose of Luke according to, uh, to the book itself the purpose that he had in recording this account as a testimony of the centurion's faith And a recognition of Jesus' authority is well accomplished in everything that Luke wrote here. He didn't have to go beyond that. He accomplished his purpose in writing. Matthew is a gospel not written to a Gentile audience. Matthew is the gospel that is written to the Jews. And it was written to a Jewish audience with the explicit purpose of telling them, of showing them that Jesus is the King of the Jews. That's why we see far more Old Testament prophecy fulfillment in Matthew than we do in Mark, Luke, or John. Why? Because Matthew was the one that was written to the Jews and they needed to to see the connections between Old Testament and New. That's why we see so much more Old Testament exclusive or Jewish exclusive teaching in Matthew. That's why it's written the way it is. That's why it's framed the way it is. So Matthew was written for an entirely different purpose and that explains why things were put in or perhaps things are left out. Now, in this context, Jesus continues. In the Matthew context, Jesus continues. Following his declaration of the centurion's faith... He says this in Matthew chapter 8, beginning in verse 11. Jesus says, And I say unto you, that many shall come from east and west, and shall sit down with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the children of the kingdom shall be cast out. 
and outer darkness. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And Jesus said unto the centurion, Go thy way, as thou hast believed, so be it done unto thee. And his servant was healed from in the selfsame hour. Jesus warns the many Jewish followers after he turned and said, I've not seen faith like this in Israel. That's all that Luke needs to record because Luke's not writing to warn any Jews. But Matthew is. So he continues with Jesus' words. Jesus warns these Jewish followers that there will be a day when many men and women will come from every corner of the earth to sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to sit down with those who are a part of the lineage of Israel, the fathers of Israel in the kingdom of heaven, while many of the children of the kingdom, that would be those who have been given the promises, those of national Israel, those whom God had given every advantage and used them to bring about his word and to bring about even his Messiah would be cast away into outer darkness and the torments found therein. Not because they were Jews as opposed to Gentiles or Gentiles as opposed to Jews because that really has nothing to do with it. Because faith, because belief hinges it is the hinge upon which a man enters or doesn't the kingdom of heaven. It's not birth. It's not lineage. It's not associations. It's not actions. It's faith. And let the truth of this root itself into your soul. You have no entitlement to salvation. You have no right to salvation. Your church can't earn it for you. Your family can't earn it for you. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in the finished work of Jesus Christ alone. And on that day, as Jesus considered the faith of the centurion, he considered with sorrow that many among those in Israel who, being children of the kingdom, having been given the word of God, having every advantage at their disposal, surrounded with the prophets of God, failed to enter the kingdom because they didn't seek it by faith. Paul warned the church of Corinth in 2 Corinthians 13.5. Examine yourselves whether ye be in the faith. Prove your own selves. Know ye not, uh, not your own selves how that Jesus Christ is in you, except ye be reprobates. Paul calls upon the church to examine, to test themselves, whether or not they be in the faith, whether or not they are numbered among those who have truly put their full faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Paul is not calling upon them to be fearful and to live their entire lives wondering because the Bible says we can't know. But he says you ought to examine. Do you feel conviction for sin? When you live in unrepentant sin, is there chastening? Do you have a desire to obey the commands of Scripture? Have you seen the fruit of the Spirit bear out in your life? The Jews knew the truths of the Bible, but they had not received those truths by faith. And you know, there's a lot of people today in a lot of churches who know a whole lot about the Bible. They've got it in their heads, but it's never made it to their hearts. They have never truly exercised faith in that which they have received. Have you received the gospel? Your assurance need not just rest upon a memory. It need not rest upon a prayer. 
Yes, the promises of God are true. Yes, if you believe with all your heart on the authority of God's word, that the gospel is true, that Jesus died on the cross, that he was buried, that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures, you are eternally saved. But in the book of 1 John, which is the treatise in the scriptures on assurance of salvation, it's not a book written to those who want to know how to be saved. It's a book written to believers on how they can have assurance and have fullness of joy in their lives. John says in 1 John 2, 3, and hereby we do know that we know him if we keep his commandments. We know that we know him. We have assurances. What is the confidence that we have that we are in the faith? It's when we keep his commandments. 1 John 2.29 If ye know that he is righteous, ye know that everyone that doeth righteousness is born of him. These verses aren't saying that if you sin, you are not a believer. That's not what this, these verses are saying. We all sin, for all have sinned. But they are saying very pointedly that if you want proof, if you want assurance, if you want to know that you know him, if you want that confidence and the joy and the peace that comes with that confidence... It will come as you recognize your love for God and your desire to keep his word. So what does it mean to examine and prove your salvation? Well, here's one way. Here's one way to examine yourself. Do you obey God? When the Bible says something, do you have within you a desire to obey that? 1 John 3, verses 16 and 19 say this, Hereby perceive we the love of God. Because he laid down his life for us, we ought also to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoso hath this world's good, and seeth his brother have need, and shutteth up his bowels of compassion from him, how dwelleth the love of God in him? My little children, let us not love in word, neither in tongue, but in deed and in truth. And hereby we know that we are of the truth, and shall assure our hearts before him. What's the next level of assurance that John talks about? Not just do you love and obey God, do you love the brethren? Do you care for the brethren? Here's another test. Examining yourself, whether you're in the faith. Do I obey God's commandments? Do I love the brethren? When I see a need, do I want to meet it? Do I serve Him in deed and in truth? 1 John three twenty four, And he that keepeth His commandments dwelleth in Him, and he in Him, and hereby we know that He abideth in us by the Spirit which he hath given us. And first John four thirteen. Hereby know we that we dwell in him and he in us, because he hath given us of his spirit. Here again John says that you can know that you are in Christ. And how do you know? By the manifestation of the Spirit of God within you. Are you bearing the fruit of the Spirit? Have you borne the fruit of the Spirit? Do, do you feel conviction over sin? Does love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance, does that come out of you? Have you seen it? Have you borne the fruit of the Spirit? Paul encourages us to examine ourselves whether we are in the faith. And John gives us the means. Do you obey God's commandments? Do you love the brethren? Do you see the evidences of the Spirit of God working in your life? These are evidences of your salvation. And when you see these, what the Bible says, and we'll talk about this more in another message in, in a couple of weeks, you can know beyond doubt that you're in Him when you see this in your life. Far better, far better to examine oneself now 
than to refuse and found wanting on the day of judgment. And that's what Jesus is warning these Jews. There will be many from the outermost parts of the earth, these Gentiles who will come and sit with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom, but the children of the kingdom, who you're so secure in your self-righteousness, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Take this as a warning, Jews. You need to, you need to think differently. You need to get what I'm giving you here. And Paul says we need as believers to do the same thing as well. Examine ourselves, make sure that, that our motives are not self-righteous motives. That, that we are not trusting in our own good works. That we're not trusting in a prayer. That we're not trusting in the assurances of our parents that, oh yeah, yeah, I remember the day that you accepted Christ. Well, wait. There's got to be more than that. There, there, should, there better be more than that. And there will be more than that if you're in Christ. You'll love God. You'll want to keep his commandments. And, and John goes on to say in 1 John, and his commandments are not grievous. It's not a burden to keep his commandments. You'll keep his commandments. You'll love the brethren. You'll see the marks of the Spirit of God within you. So Jesus told the disciples on that day these things. And we would do well also to examine ourselves. The centurion had faith had the thing that so many Jews who had every advantage did not. Jesus tells them that the representatives of the centurion, he tells the representatives of the centurion, go your way. And that it would be done unto them according to his word. And his servant was healed. And so we come back to Luke and we read this in verse 10. And they that were sent, returning to the house, found the servant whole. That had been sick. Simple as that, right? Jesus says, go your way, he's fine. And wouldn't you know it? He was fine. In this account, quite appropriately, following perhaps the greatest show of faith in Christ since his ministry began, we find Jesus display the greatest evidences of his authority since his ministry began. In that he says the word, and from afar, the centurion's servant is healed. We hasten on, however, to a second account in verses 11 through 18. And this is going to up the ante once again. The the display of Christ's authority and power is going to be uh, magnified once again. We read, And it came to pass in the day after that he went into a city called Nain, and many of his disciples went with him and much people. Now when he came nigh to the gate of the city, behold, there was a dead man carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and much people of the city was with her. So Jesus goes the day after declaring that he had never seen such great faith, no, not in Israel. He heals, heals the centurion's servant and he goes into the city called Nain. Many of his disciples are with him and they're having a funeral. Of course, at that time, a man dies and they very quickly do all the preparations. They couldn't refrigerate the body or anything like that. They quickly do the preparations. Oftentimes, the funeral would be the same day as the death. And now they're carrying him out without the city because, of course, with disease and such that comes from dead bodies, you carry them outside the city. You bury them outside the city where you would not have to deal with the potential of disease or, you know, if a dog digs them up, whatever it might be, you, you, they're not in the city for, for cleanliness purposes. Ceremonially unclean, you couldn't have them in the city. So they bury him outside. Typically, as I mentioned, these funerals would be the same day as the death. And we read this in verse 13. When the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her, and he said unto her, Weep not. I love this. 
When Jesus sees her, he's moved with, he sees this woman weeping and he is moved with compassion. The scriptures tell us we have not a Savior who cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities, but was tempted in all points like as we and yet without sin. Christ is touched by our problems, by our needs, by our sorrows. He sees this woman crying and he is moved with compassion. Notice there's nothing in this account about her asking Jesus for anything. There's nothing about her faith or even the faith of those watching. Jesus is not doing this in response to an appeal. This account focuses simply on the fact that Jesus was compassionate toward people. And he went out of his way to comfort people who were in sorrow. And so he looks at her and he says, weep not, don't cry. Take note that this was not a rebuke of her actions. It was reflecting his desire to comfort her. And then he does this in verses 14 and 15. And he came and he touched the bear, which would have been like a cot upon which they were carrying him. And they that bear him stood still. And he said, young man, I say unto thee, arise. And he that was dead sat up and began to speak. And he delivered him to his mother. Jesus touches the bed. Carrier stands still. Jesus says, arise. And the guy sits up and starts speaking. I mean, this is post-funeral here, right? Yeah, I was dead. Just two verses in the scripture, in Luke, dedicated to raising a man from the dead. Divine compassion, summoning absolute power to conquer man's greatest material foe, to comfort a weeping mother. This elicited the expected response among those who were there. Fear. Reverence. Awe. That word in the Bible, that's what it means. It means reverence, respect, honor. Verse 16. There came a fear on all. And they glorified God, saying that a great prophet is risen among us, and that God hath visited, inspected, visited, relieved. That word means his people. They feared. And they truly recognized that a prophet had risen up among them. It is perhaps not a coincidence that Zechariah said the same thing when the Lord opened his mouth. Him having been dumb, unable to speak for nine months, ten months, nine plus months following his lack of faith in the birth of his son John the Baptist. And in Luke one sixty-eight. When his voice is opened and he begins to praise God, he says, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he hath visited and redeemed his people. Well, now the people are seeing the same thing. The Lord has visited us. He has come among us. He is working among us. A dead man is now alive. And we finish our account today with Jesus' growing fame. And there came a fear on all. Um, Excuse me. And the rumor of him went forth throughout all Judea and throughout all the regions round about. And the disciples of John showed him of all these things. That word rumor in the Greek is the word logos, the word word, the word that is also used in John 1.1. In the beginning was the word, a spoken word, a declared word, and the word was with God and the word was God. A word had gone forth. But I, I like the translation here. 
Because as a word is going forth that a man has risen from the dead, no doubt uh, it was seen as a rumor. There's no doubt. Or else Jesus would never have been hung on a cross. Right? So it's, it's, it's not a, the most literal translation, but it's, it's, a, it's a good rendering here. His fame spread. Everyone is talking about this prophet. And imagine you're an Israelite and you hear this. You hear words, rumors of a prophet doing signs and wonders. First, he casts out demons and heals some fevers. Then he's commanding fish and they're swimming into nets so much that the boats are sinking and nets are breaking. Then he's restoring withered hands on the Sabbath day. Then he's healing the the servant of a Gentile man from afar. And now he's raising the dead. That's how rumors work, right? They grow with time. It starts small and then it gets bigger. And next thing you know, he's walking on water. Well, he, he, we'll get there. But this wasn't a rumor. This is indeed the Son of God. And the final phrase introduces the next concepts. One which we'll explore more next week. That the disciples of John went to him, being at this point in prison, John is in prison, And we'll talk about that next week and told all of these things to John. And John's response to these will give us great insight into the Jewish mind. And we'll talk about that next time. So the disciples of John have gone to John, showed him all of these things, told him of these teachings, and interpreting them to him, by the way, through a Jewish mindset. Keep that in mind as we we, uh, talk next week. But for this evening, let's apply. My question number one for you as we apply. What are the limits to your faith? What is the box that you have put God in that maybe he should not be in? Again, I'm not talking about getting him outside of this box. We don't do that. We dare not do that. But what box have you synthetically put God in that you do not believe he can get out? Earlier in the message, we considered the words of Christ and echoed those words of Paul in 2 Corinthians 13, where he called the church to examine themselves, whether they be in the faith. And for you who know that you are in the faith, may I then encourage you to examine your faith? Jesus sees the faith of the centurion and he says, I have not found so great faith, no, not in Israel. And this was not meant to be a dig against the Jews who were following him. He didn't demote Jewish, Judas Iscariot right there and say, Judas, you're out, centurion, you're in. You're the 12th apostle now. He didn't do that. He didn't say, well, the centurion, he's got the greatest faith, so he's the next Peter. Now he's the one who will will get the blessings that Peter would have gotten, and Peter can just kind of be set aside. He didn't do that. The problem wasn't that the Jewish disciples of Christ were purposefully refusing to take their understanding of Jesus' authority to the next level. They had a blind spot. They had a blind spot which was hindering their ability to exercise faith without reservation because of the way that they'd been taught, the way that they had learned, the way that they'd been conditioned. And that synthetic barrier was a hindrance to them. And my question to you is this, what are your barriers? Now, when I say a blind spot, the problem with blind spots is that we don't see our own blind spots. That's why they're blind spots. So maybe this is not a question just to ask yourself. Maybe this is a question to ask your wife your husband, your children, your parents, someone you respect in the church, your pastor. 
What have you seen in my life that you might interpret as a barrier to my faith? Do you and I have synthetic barriers in our own lives based perhaps upon our experience, the way we grew up, what we've understood in the past, how we've seen God work concerning our own faith? Are there things that the Bible expects of you or things that the Bible says you should expect of God that you simply are not experiencing or that you really don't believe you can experience? Could it be that perhaps unknowingly you have put a biblical expectation or a promise on that impossible list, not intentionally, not maliciously, not necessarily with intentional lack of faith, but simply a lack of faith. To examine yourself in light of the biblical record is like a wellness visit for your spirit. Is it healthy? And this is a good thing to do. You hope and expect that you find nothing amiss when you pray a prayer like David would pray in Psalm 139. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any wicked way in me. but better to check and find nothing wrong than to have something wrong and never check. And that's my my, my first encouragement to you today. That you plan time to regularly and consistently examine your heart before the Lord. Why? Because faith is an ocean of which no man has fully plumbed the depths. It was D.L. Moody who famously said, the world has yet to see what what God can do with a man fully consecrated to him. A man like D.L. Moody, who stood on the shoulders of other great men, who had seen so much great done for God. And he says, the world has yet to see what God can do with a man fully consecrated to him. And I think that we are still living with the world having yet seen that. And throughout history, we've seen what God can do, haven't we? Through men like Moses, Joshua, Jonathan, Elijah, Elisha, Daniel, Hananiah, Azariah, Mishael. Through men in far more contemporary history, through the Hudson Taylors, the Adoniram Judsons, through the George Muellers, through the David Brainerds, through the D.L. Moody's, through the Charles Spurgeons. What's limiting us? Could it just be that we look at them and we say, that's not for me? Why isn't it for you? Why can't it be for you? What's stopping God's blessings and God's promises from pouring out on you like it's poured out on others. A couple of weeks ago, we walked through Hebrews 11 just briefly and considered the record of men and women who by faith saw God do amazing things. Some unto blessing, some unto death. Closer to our day, we've seen this as well. All men who believed something which God rhetorically asked in the Old Testament. Genesis 18, 14, God says, Is anything too hard? For the Lord, he said that to Abraham, who didn't believe that he could possibly have a child in his old age. Is anything too hard for the Lord? Jeremiah 32, 27, Behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is there anything too hard for me? The limits to what God can do in and through us are constrained by two things, and only two things. First, his will. Second, our faith. That first one we have no control over. The second one 
we have all control over. Let's make sure that the second one is well in hand so that the will of God can work in us everything that he wants us to do. So what are the synthetic limitations to our faith? And what if we, like the centurion, could reject those limitations, could blow past them? What could Christ do? What would Christ do with us? We read an interesting account at the end of the Gospel of John in regard to faith. Jesus had risen from the dead and had been seen by all but Thomas. The disciples excitedly told Thomas of Jesus' resurrection to which he famously replied, except I shall see his hands and the print in his, of his nails and put my finger into the print of his nails and thrust my hand into his side. I will not believe. How, how decidedly Jewish. And while we give Thomas a very hard time, so much so that he has unfortunately been, mis- has been labeled doubting Thomas in all of our accounts, knowing that the Jews had always sought for a sign, what does Jesus do but appear unto him, right? And is willing to let him do everything that he needs to do to believe. Paul admitted in 1 Corinthians one twenty two, the Jews require a sign and the Gentiles seek after wisdom. Excuse me, the Greeks seek after wisdom. And this is not a generalization, not necessarily uh, um, true in every case, but still, it's, it's very much so valid. So Jesus appears to Thomas in his mercy and in his grace and allows him to do exactly what Thomas demanded in order to believe. And then Jesus tells Thomas this in John 20, verse 29. Jesus saith unto him, Thomas, because thou hast seen me, thou hast believed. Blessed are they that have not seen and yet have believed. The Jews in Jesus' day were blessed with the ministry of Jesus Christ, and he indeed did great wonders among them. But greater still was the joy and delight in the heart of Christ on the account of the centurion who, having not seen, believed. Those who are able to act upon what God has said, his promises and his teachings by faith, free from the constraints of human need for proof or of man's wisdom, will find to whatever extent they're willing to step out in faith. Blessing. And once the process begins, it's able to grow in a wonderful way. Perhaps you've experienced that cycle in your own life. That's our second point. See, here's the thing about faith. When we have true faith, it inspires action. And when we act in faith, it brings the obvious and expected results because God is faithful. And when those results come, what does it do but build our faith in order to step out and do more? In order to keep going. The cycle continues. Is it, it is wrong. It is indeed wrong to tempt the Lord your God. But by that same token, he is just waiting for his children to prove him. Prove God's word. Step out in faith. If the Bible says it, if the Bible says it will happen, do you have the faith to believe it? To step out and to do what God has asked you to do on the promise that he will bring forth the blessing that he's promised he would. And the more you step out, always in line with God's revealed will. Again, we're not talking about getting outside of the box, this box. The more you step out, the more your faith will be affirmed because God will not fail. And as you see God faithful, it will give you 
the confidence to step out more. And so Paul says in Romans chapter 1, verse 17, that the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. Third and final point as we close. Understand Christ's authority and your relationship to it. We read in this account incredible things. We read of a centurion with great faith. But we read even more of Christ's authority when he raises a man from the dead. Now, this will not be the last resurrection. Jesus will raise Lazarus from the dead, and then he will indeed raise himself from the dead, claiming victory over sin and death for all who will believe. But don't just allow this to be words on a page. It's only two verses in your Bible in the book of Luke. But don't just allow it to be words on a page. The dead was raised back to life. This is infinite power. This is infinite authority. And your relationship to this authority is twofold. First, obedience. Whether you believe it or not, there is a God in heaven above you who knows all and who is in control of all. Whether you ever accept that authority, He has that authority. This God in heaven has revealed Himself to you through His Holy Spirit. Now, if the supreme being who created all that is reaches out to his creation, how foolish is it for that creation to ignore him? And so we need to recognize, first of all, that by nature of God's authority, we ought to obey him. This is, of all things, what God desires to bless. And so God tells Israel in Isaiah 59, verses 1 and 2, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, neither his ear heavy that it cannot hear, but your iniquities have separated between you and your God, and your sins have hid his face from you that he will not hear. God says, it's not that I am shortened, it's not that I can't do the things I've promised, it's that you won't obey me. James would teach it this way in James chapter 4, verses 7 to 10. Submit yourself therefore to God, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw nigh to God and he will draw nigh to you. Cleanse your heart, hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, ye double-minded. Be afflicted and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to heaviness. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and he shall lift you up. Is that not the same message? See your sin. See it's an offense. Position yourself right under the authority of God through repentance and watch God exalt you. Divine exaltation comes on the heels of humility before God. Humility as we recognize authority. Obedience as we recognize authority. Christ has all authority. Are you properly positioned to His authority? Do you have the faith? Are you allowing that faith to grow and to build and that cycle of faith where you step out in faith and you, you prove God, and He proves Himself faithful, and you say, wow, God proved Himself faithful, and that gives you the strength to do it again, and then God will show Himself faithful, and then that cycle just continues and your faith grows. And finally, are you properly positioned to Christ's authority? Do you recognize, do you truly, have you truly contemplated the authority that Jesus Christ has? The Spirit of Christ which lives in you. 
And are we positioned properly? Humbling ourselves before the Lord so that he may exalt us, so that he might lift us up.